1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War, episode 151, The Early War at Sea, part one, all around the world. This week, a big thank you goes out to Troy for the donation, and to Mirko, Dale, Gary, Jonathan, Andrew, Sam, Donzadat, and Joanne for choosing to support the podcast by becoming members. You can find out more over at historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash members. One of the enduring legacies... Of the Second World War was the unprecedented and up to the current day unreplicated scale of the naval conflict. Since ancient times, wars have often contained both a naval component to go along with the actions on land, but never before have as many men, as much time, and such huge quantities of resources been committed to fighting the war at sea. And this will be the first of what will be many episodes over the course of the podcast on the naval war. And so I thought I would just briefly discuss how naval matters will be discussed on the show moving forward. At times, the events at sea are linked to events on land or in the air. In those cases, the naval actions will be discussed along with those other topics in their specific series. For example, the events around Malta in the Mediterranean, contains a, an air and a sea component, and so both of those will be discussed together. But there will also be other episodes that will be dedicated to strictly naval activities, like the next 12 episodes, which will focus on the naval activities that would occur between the start of the war in 1939 and, roughly, the invasion of Norway in April 1940. During the first three episodes of this series, we're going to set the stage for the war, discuss the navies involved in the war in 1939 and 1940, before jumping into the opening moves of the conflict in episode 4. Then the second half of this series will focus on just two specific topics, the adventures of the Admiral Graf Spey and U-Boats. This episode will focus on the largest navy in the world in 1939, and the nation that had the greatest stakes in the naval war, Great Britain and the Royal Navy. The Royal Navy was the strongest naval power in the world in 1939, but it can be so easy to forget that based on the events of the war. This is because, even with its strength, the Royal Navy had the most obligations around the world, which would force its strength to be spread out around the globe. Before and during the war, British leaders and the leaders of the Royal Navy were forced to constantly play a a balancing game with a limited set of resources and a seemingly unlimited number of ways in which they needed to be used. But while the Royal Navy had responsibilities all around the globe, those responsibilities were always centered first and foremost around Europe. In Europe, there were two primary threats in the years before the Second World War. The threat that would develop first was the Italian Navy. The Regia Marina had long viewed the French Navy as its primary enemy, and the two navies would enter the Second World War on very comparable footings. Obviously, this balance was in the favor of the British, as they were allied with the French, and so that was not the biggest problem with the Italians. It was, instead, the extreme importance of the Mediterranean to imperial communications. For over a century before the Second World War, the Mediterranean was seen as an incredibly important area for the Royal Navy to control, to the point that for much of the time before 1906, there was more Royal Navy strength stationed in the Mediterranean than in any other single area of the globe, and it was seen as one of the most prestigious commands in the Empire. This extreme importance would change during the Anglo-German naval arms race that preceded the First World War. But the ability for the Royal Navy to project power in the Mediterranean was still seen as a critical part of the defense of the empire, due to how much British traffic used the Suez Canal to move between India and Europe. Of course, the other major enemy in Europe was Germany. For 15 years after the First World War, Germany was not legally allowed to have a modern navy due to the provisions of the Versailles Treaty. The treaty limited the Germans to some old pre-dreadnought battleships, and then some smaller craft that were Of no real threat to any of the major navies around Europe. But this would begin to change during the 1930s, and then would accelerate after Hitler came to power in 1933. There were several major developments around the German Navy during the second half of the 1930s, which would cause great concern for the Royal Navy. The first was the construction and introduction into service of the Panzerschiff. These were heavy cruisers that were powered by diesel engines and were a bit over 10,000 tons in displacement, but they mounted six 11-inch guns. Only three would be built, the last completed in 1936, but they would be a source of real concern in Britain because they tapped into one of the greatest concerns of the Royal Navy. This concern was one of surface raiders that would attack imperial trade around the globe. The idea of German ships wandering the world's oceans interdicting British trade would have a tremendous impact on British planning before the war, and the panzer Panzerschiff seemed perfectly designed to fill that role exactly, with their diesel engines, with their long range, with their heavy guns. Was this threat real or imagined, though? Well, you'll have to wait for episode 6 of this series to find out when we track down the actions of one of those panzer Panzerschiff, the Admiral Graf Spey. The second major development that would cause a lot of heartburn for the Royal Navy would be the resumption of German U-boat production. The impact of German U-boats on British trade during the First World War had been a major problem, which is one of the many reasons that Germany was banned from building any submarines in the Treaty of Versailles. But as the restrictions of the treaty were lifted, or ignored, over the years, so too was the prohibition on the construction of submarines. This meant that in a war with Germany, the U-boat threat would once again be present and would threaten British ships. Now the third major development, again, that caused concern for the Royal Navy, was the resumption of large-scale German naval construction in the second half of the 1930s. During this time, the Germans would begin building destroyers, cruisers, and even battleships, like other navies, with all of these ships creating a threat to the Royal Navy. There was an attempt to control the growth of the German Navy with the 1935 Anglo-German Naval Agreement, which limited the total tonnage of the German fleet to 35% of the total tonnage of the Royal Navy. But this did not solve the problem, it just sought to contain it. Eventually, the treaty would be renounced by Germany in 1939. While these were the challenges in Europe, it's important to remember that none of these threats put the Royal Navy at great risk. The other navies around Europe are much smaller than the Royal Navy by 1939, but they could cause enough damage to the British war effort to cause problems. There was also another threat on the other side of the globe, in the Pacific and Japan. During the First World War, Britain and Japan had maintained an alliance primarily built around the idea that it was better for the two nations and their navies to work together. This alliance was beneficial to the Royal Navy because it allowed a greater percentage of its strength to be focused in other theaters, while it was beneficial to the Japanese because it increased cooperation between its navy and the most powerful navy in the world. Then after the war, the Japanese would also be able to parlay that alliance and its entry into the First World War into some Pacific mandates, which would be very useful for the Japanese war planning before the Second World War. However, in the years immediately after the first world war, the relationship between Japan and other nations like the United Kingdom and the United States began to fall apart, mostly due to Japanese ambitions. These ambitions would eventually be contained by the Washington Naval Treaty, under which Japan was permitted just 66% of the capital ship tonnage of the United States and Great Britain. But the agreement would not extinguish the Japanese ambitions, and over the 15 years of the Naval Treaty era, In some ways, the restrictions of the treaty served mainly to inflame those ambitions further. Factions within the Japanese Imperial Navy would chafe under the restrictions of the treaty, and when the Japanese finally exited the treaty, they would begin to expand their navy in massive construction efforts, as if to make up for lost time. From the Royal Navy perspective, the size of the Japanese Navy was a problem, especially as the antagonism between the two nations continued to grow. But almost more important was the problem of geography. With both Germany and Japan appearing to be possible future enemies, and Italy also seemingly a threat by the mid-1930s, the Royal Navy suddenly had powerful navies to contend with on opposite sides of the world. Under peacetime construction restrictions, and within the treaty system, there was no great way to deal with this problem. There simply were not enough ships to go around. The decision would be made that the majority of the Royal Navy's strength should be held in Europe, and that if a war started with Japan, it would be sent to the Pacific as quickly as possible, although that may not have been very quick. In the case of war in Europe and against Japan, Europe would have to take priority, and the British possessions in the Pacific would be largely left to fend for themselves. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only.
0: Exclusions apply. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places. Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan
1: Now that we've talked a little bit about the problems that the Royal Navy had, it's time to look at what tools the Royal Navy had to try and solve those problems. When looking at the evolution of the Royal Navy during the interwar years, it is essential to start with the impact of the Washington Naval Treaty. In some ways, the treaty was the worst possible thing that could have happened to the Royal Navy. In other ways, it was the best possible thing that could have happened to the Royal Navy. One of the reasons that it was the worst was because of the limitations it placed on shipbuilding during the years that it was in effect. This was particularly problematic for the British due to the wide geographical spread of where it needed to maintain naval strength. It was more beneficial for the Royal Navy to build a lot of smaller ships rather than a few larger ships. But with the tonnage limitations placed on capital ships and the size of capital ships already in the Royal Navy, there were only so many ships that could be retained. This problem would also extend to smaller ships, with the 10,000-ton 8-inch treaty cruiser limiting how many ships the Royal Navy could have and stay under the treaty tonnage allotment, but also making sure that they kept pace with the designs that other nations were making. And also, the treaty was the best thing to happen to the Royal Navy in their interwar years at the same time. In 1921, Britain simply could not afford another naval arms race after the economic trials and tribulations of the First World War. The Treasury simply could not support it, and so anything that prevented a naval arms race between Britain, America, Japan, and other nations was a huge win for the Royal Navy. Another positive of the naval treaties was that they codified the fact that the Royal Navy would be the strongest, or at least tied with the United States Navy, as the strongest navy in the world. During the treaty years, the Royal Navy would still continue to build ships though, with multiple lines of cruisers and destroyers being built during the 1920s and early 1930s. They would also be allowed to build the Rodney and Nelson battleships, in recompense for the fact that most of the Royal Navy's ships in 1921 were from the earlier dreadnought years and were inferior to the newer Japanese and American designs. There would also be some work done on modernizing the capital ships of the fleet, with many of the larger ships undergoing a small modernization program in the 1920s to increase gun range and and make other improvements. Then in the 1930s, some ships were selected to undergo a far more drastic change, with ships like Warspite receiving a full modernization program that included a complete machinery replacement, which would extend their useful life well into the war years. Not all of those modernization efforts would be completed by 1939 when they would be put on hold. Even with all of the building restrictions of the treaty and that that prevented ships from being built or large ships from being built, the biggest sort of hindrance on Royal Navy building programs would actually be funding. First during the 1920s as the nation recovered from the First World War, and then in the 1930s as it recovered from the Great Depression. The topic of funding and and how much was available or not available to the Royal Navy would occupy a tremendous sort of volume of paperwork during the interwar years, and that wouldn't really end until the Second World War started. When the Washington Naval Treaty was signed in 1921, it was agreed that the treaty would only last for 15 years, expiring on December 31st, 1936. In 1930, there would be a London Naval Conference which would amend the agreement but would not extend it. In late 1934, the Japanese notified the other signatories that they would not be extending the time frame of the agreement, which was due to expire at the end of 1936. This was a clear signal that they meant to begin a naval construction program which would have to be answered by other nations. Throughout the 1930s, the Admiralty, along with design groups in every nation uh, involved, Constantly designed and reevaluated and redesigned possible construction plans for when the treaty expired. For the Royal Navy, this met many conversations and discussions about basic design tenets of capital ships. Gun size, displacement, speed, etc. You know, how you balance all those things. During the mid-1930s, they would land on the 14-inch gun, which was in line with the size restrictions of the London Naval Treaty. And they believed that it was the best option for their next class of battleships. However, other nations would choose 15- and 16-inch guns at the same time. But by the time that the British discovered that their battleships, eventually the King George V class, would have smaller guns, it was too late to change and it was decided that the delay for a redesign was not worth it. The construction of smaller ships, cruisers and destroyers, would also accelerate after the treaty expired, and aircraft carriers would not be forgotten. The new construction program that was launched by the Royal Navy that was started after the expiration of the treaty, would be large enough that by the end of 1940, the Royal Navy planned on being able to field 15 capital ships, 8 aircraft carriers, 70 cruisers, 145 destroyers, and 55 submarines. The vast majority of these ships would be completed, although many of them would simply replace the losses of the first two years of the war, rather than serve to expand the size of the fleet. Now, from the perspective of simple raw numbers... The Royal Navy was the strongest in the world in September 1939. But within those numbers, there are some problems. For the larger ships, the capital ships and aircraft carriers, there was a wide range of capabilities due to the age of some of the ships. For example, the R-class battleships were built before the First World War and had not yet been modernized. This primarily meant that they were slow. Really slow. Which was a problem across many British ships, because they were older, and one of the biggest advances during the interwar years, if you look at ships that were built before or during the First World War, and then in the late 1930s, is that those built in the late 1930s are often much faster. On the aircraft carrier side, there were similar problems, with the designs of some of the older aircraft carriers clearly displaying the fact that aircraft carriers, as a concept, were relatively new, and there'd been a lot of evolution just in the 15 years before 1939. Other navies would also have the same problem around aircraft carriers, with some newer aircraft carriers built in the mid to late 1930s, like the Royal Navy's Ark Royal, and then some dating all the way back to the First World War, which were really only viable by 1939 as sort of second-line carriers that were mostly used to just ferry aircraft to various places. The Royal Navy would still have more aircraft carriers, though, outnumbering both the Japanese and the Americans in 1939, although those numbers would change before the end of 1941 when those other two nations entered the war. Six carriers were also under construction in the form of the illustrious and implacable classes, which would begin to enter the Navy near the end of 1940. One of the more unique challenges for the British, at least in comparison to the American or Japanese navies, was the status of the Fleet Air arm. After the First World War, the aircraft of the Royal Navy were part of the Royal Air Force. This was seen as important by the RAF, who had tried to ensure that they maintained their independence that they had gained near the end of the First World War. But it also meant that the Royal Navy was often struggling to get their resources allocated to naval air operations by the Royal Air Force. This would not change until 1937, when control of the air power on board British carriers was brought under control of the Admiralty. This allowed for only a few years to reverse the partial neglect that it had experienced over the previous two decades. On the other hand, the Royal Navy was the only navy in Europe with aircraft carriers, so their naval aircraft were better than all the others because those others did not exist. I will also just close this section around the strength of the Royal Navy in 1939 by stating that while in total the Royal Navy was the largest in the world, it's hard not to discuss at least briefly, the vast chasm between the size and strength of the Royal Navy in 1914 and 1939. On August 26, 1939, the home fleet would sail from Scapa Flow to begin its first war patrol of the entrances of the North Sea. It would contain just four capital ships, one aircraft carrier, two cruisers, and ten destroyers, scarce as many as the vanguard of its navy in the days of its power before Jutland. Yes, the navies of the world had changed, the, the war at sea had changed, and the enemy was greatly reduced in strength, but it was clear even from the very beginning that the naval war between Germany and Britain would be very different in this new war than it had been in the last one. When planning for this war, the possibility of a fleet engagement in the Jutland style of course always existed, but especially in European waters, that type of fleet engagement seemed unlikely given the enemies that would be faced, especially given the fleet composition of the German Navy in 1939. What did seem more likely is that Germany would pursue a war against British trade using both surface raiders and U-boats. The threat of these attacks on British trade would force the Royal Navy to respond by spreading its strength out over a very wide area. Before and at the start of the war, this would also prompt a tremendous amount of resources to be poured into the construction of destroyers and other small escort vessels, which delayed other projects. It would also force larger ships to be dispersed into the trade routes to protect against ships like the Panzerschiff, or other German ships that were able to escape into the Northern Atlantic. These actions usually did not result in the Royal Navy losing ships, although there is a few notable exceptions, generally the size of the HMS Hood, but it did serve to spread out the strength of the Royal Navy. For example, there would be a considerable period of time where battleships and aircraft carriers would be called upon for convoy defense. Along with these attacks on British trade, the standing war plans for the Royal Navy also involved a blockade of German trade on the same model that had been pursued during the First World War. This blockade would be a distant blockade of the North Sea with the cooperation of the French, with the hope that the effects on Germany and Italy would be largely the same as the effects on Germany and Austria-Hungary between 1914 and 1918. During that earlier war, the British-led blockade had been very problematic for the Continental Powers particularly in the area of food and critical imports like rubber and oil. There were similarly high hopes placed on the blockade in the 1930s, although the results would be disappointing. It also served to spread Royal Navy strength thinner. They had to man the blockade routes of the North Sea and protect it against the movement of German shipping. This also meant that in combination with the attacks on British trade and the defense of British trade, that the Royal Navy, for the most part, at least for the first phase of a war in Europe, would be largely on the defensive. This perfectly aligned with the broader national strategy, though, which was firmly based on the belief that Britain and France had the advantage in a long war. This is such an important assumption to understand, very important. The military and political leadership of Britain and France were absolutely convinced that no matter what the relative military strength of Germany was in 1939— If they could withstand the initial German attacks, they would be victorious in a long war. In this assumption, they were technically right. But in late 1940, it sure did not look like they were on the correct path. And much of the criticism of the actions and plans of the two nations, including those of the Royal Navy, can come under criticism because of the the base assumption that a long war was the war that Britain and France should prepare to fight and should fight. When working under the assumption that the long war favored Britain, the defensive strategy of the Royal Navy makes a lot more sense. In August 1939, war seemed imminent. And it was. And the Royal Navy would put in place its plans with the ships that it had available. In some areas, the first months of the war would proceed much as expected. Patrols would begin in the North Sea. Convoys would start shaping up. The Germans would launch their U-boats against British trade— and there would be some surface raiders. The Royal Navy would react along the lines of its pre-war plans, with convoy defense from destroyers and hunting groups sent after the surface raiders. They would also settle in for a long war, and a long war it would get.